you go ahead and uh, stand with me and open your Bibles to Acts, the 18th chapter. Acts chapter 18, towards the end, we're going to look at verses 18 through 23 this morning. Acts 18, verses 18 through 23. Remember as I'm reading, you're hearing God's inerrant and infallible word. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and met and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kincari, he had, his, had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Probably in our contemporary culture, and certainly probably over the last 20, 30 years, the, the single most subject that evangelicalism has sought interest in or to learn about or bought books about is how to discern God's will. Everybody wants practical guidance. You know, how do we get this will from God, this, this understanding that we need to be able to make the decisions of life that uh, we need to? And you know, you know, questions uh, like, you know, who, who should I marry? And why does evil exist? How does that work out in God's will? They all find a lot of gravity and urgency um, and any number of attempts have been made to try to get our brains around it to understand what do we need to be doing as believers to be able to discern God's will. Well, at the very beginning of all that is a mistake. And I'll go ahead and say it at the outset. The mistake is that you and I should not be discerning God's will, ever. What you and I should be doing is understanding God's will. There's a big difference between discerning and understanding, and we'll go through that together this morning. But much of God's will, as you read Scripture in the Bible, it is uh, very clear that a lot of this is mysterious. We don't know what God's up to. Some of it He makes known. Some passages even command us to seek out God's will for life circumstances, like the New Testament lesson that was read this morning. And we're going to return to Romans 12, by the way. But for most of us, when we hear the phrase God's will, we think immediately of getting answers from God about a particular problem or choice we need to make. That's probably where most of us are. We have a decision to make. We have choices before us. We want to make the right one. We don't want to make the wrong one. And so, God, we need you to reveal your will. Well, I think that while there's some use in that, I think it's led us to a place where we have probably gone off the rails and misunderstood it as Scripture has revealed it, probably, arguably, more than anything else with the practicality of the Christian life. We've gotten into a frame of mind where we think that there is this secret thread out there that if we tap into it and we understand it, that God, for our particular circumstances of life, is going to tell us exactly what we need to do. And typically, when you see titles of books that talk about this, they will say, discerning God's will. 
But I want to step away from that this morning. And I want you and I to look at what's happening with Paul here because he says this very thing. They want him to stay. And he says, I will return to you if it's God's will. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, let's take a look at it together. The context of all of this here, if you go to Acts 18, is the end of his second missionary journey. Paul has three missionary journeys. He's about to begin his third one. This is the end of the second one. The third one is going to take him all the way through um, several areas in Greece. We know he's going to eventually set sail to Rome, and that will be the end of the book itself. But here, before he goes into all of those places in the third missionary journey, he's leaving Corinth for Ephesus. And he's going to leave and go back to Palestine. Priscilla and Aquila were two people that he had met along the way. Very helpful to him. Very helpful in uh, discipling other people. But he's going to leave them there. And he's going to go back to that area of Asia Minor and then down into Antioch. He leaves there. They want him to stay. They want him to come back. And he says, I will if it's God's will. So what I want to do is deal with, how is Paul going to answer that question? What's Paul going to do? He throws it out. He says, I'll do it if it's God's will. Well, there's a heart, obviously, in Paul that he wants to be able to come back. How is he going to make that decision? Whether he needs to go back to the church there or not. And that's what I want to do. Is I want to wrestle with that a little bit about the difference between discerning God's will and understanding God's will. Because there's a huge difference between the two. And I want you to see that what Paul does, and I think what we learn by implication for his instruction, his practice of life, is to seek to understand it and then make decisions predicated on that understanding. So, again, we're not going to discern, we're going to seek to understand, we're going to do how-tos here, but we're going to look at the question of what is God's will in the Bible? What does the Bible say about this? How does the Bible talk about the will of God? We know that it does. And in the Reformed tradition, we tend to be kind of big on this thing because we believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who's in control of everything. So how is it that the Scriptures reveal this, not simply from God's perspective, but from our perspective and how you and I interact with it to make the kind of decisions that we need to make? You see what I'm saying? Are you following with me? That's what I want to go through this morning because I think it's exactly where Paul was. Paul didn't know what was going to happen. So how is he going to make the decision whether he needs to go back or not? And what can you and I learn from that? So first, let's do this. What is the will of God? Well, you can go to any number of Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Confession, French Confession, Second Helvetic Confession. You get a whole bunch of them and see all kinds of succinct statements about what God's will is. But in a nutshell, God's will, very simply, is anything he wants to happen. That's it. God's will is anything that God wants to happen. There you go. That's it in a nutshell. How do we understand, though, that definition in light of the way that Scripture reveals it? And what I want to do is I want to look at three ways that Scripture and historically Christian theology has sought to answer this question and unpacking that very simple statement of how the Bible speaks about the will of God and His sovereignty and then how it is that you and I bring it down to our level and appropriate it in our Christian living. first category that theologians like to talk about is what is called God's decretive will. God's decretive will. Sometimes in, if you're reading books on theology, you'll see it's referred to as God's antecedent will. What is it that God has decided beforehand is going to happen? In the passage in Daniel this morning where Nebuchadnezzar 
is addressed there, where that's uh, describing um, what his testimony is. He says, you know, you're the one who brings it all to pass, and nobody can do anything against that. You're, you're the God who's ordained all things, and good Presbyterians, we affirm that. God has decreed whatsoever shall come to pass, to use the language of uh, confession. That which he has purposed to happen. What we like to understand in theology is that this is God's lordship attribute of control. God's lordship attribute of control. And the way that we appropriate this on an individual level is it should bring you a great deal of comfort to know that there are no accidents. Isn't it good to know that God's not up there in heaven twiddling his thumbs and hoping that you make the right decision that he can respond to? That whatever transpires in your life is ordained of God. And sometimes that goes your way and sometimes it goes against you. But nonetheless, it is what it is. And you and I believe in a sovereign God whose lordship aspect of control is completely absolute. He has ordained the ends from the beginning. If you look at Isaiah 46, that's exactly the testimony of the prophet. He's made known all these things. The end from the beginning itself. This will, strictly speaking, is independent and unaffected by man in any circumstance. Let me explain that again. God's decretive will, that which he has purposed beforehand that should take place, is never affected or altered by your decisions. In Lamentations 3, for example, it says, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? We talk about God's immutability in theology. Sorry, I'm using some of these kind of big old terms and all that, but you know what I'm talking about. Immutable, it doesn't change. It's a good thing because if he changed, then he'd go back on his word and his covenant. He says, because I don't go back on my word, because I don't change, you can rest assured that everything I've promised you will be yours. Isn't that good news? Get excited, Presbyterians, okay? God has made a promise to you that he'll never go back on his word. He does not change. He has decreed it. He has decreed that he will save you from your sins. You don't ever have to worry if God is going to follow through on that promise. Hallelujah. Yeah, I'm a Presbyterian, and I said hallelujah. That is so comforting to know that we affirm that and we believe that and that Scripture teaches that. No matter what you're dealing with in life, God hasn't abandoned you. You know, you look, you look in the Bible, you don't see, um, you know, God saying, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden or anything like that. You just see challenges all the way through. You know, we're, we're, we're led into areas of discomfort to engage. God never tells us to stay where we are or stagnant. Look at Abraham. I mean, Abraham's told, leave your comfort zone and go to a place you don't have any clue about. And he encounters all kinds of problems all the way. He gets down to Egypt, and then they're trying to take his wife. And then there's a famine. I mean, over and over and over again, you see these things transpiring in the lives of the people of God, and yet there's an unshakable confidence that no matter what it is, they will not be destroyed. And I think that's more the rule than the exception. I think if our lives are characterized by perpetual comfort and lack of challenges and lack of hardships, that we're probably not being faithful and obedient. I can't say that with absolute certainty, but I think that tends to be the case. Some have said that this decretive will of God is a secret will. That he does not reveal this to us. And by and large, that's true. But there are places in the Bible where he does tell us about what his secret will is. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, he says, This is the Jesus 
whom God delivered over to you according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge that you by the hands of wicked men put to death. So sometimes he does reveal it. This is what he has purposed from the beginning. Revelation says the same thing. Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. It took place in history, but it was ordained that it would take place long before it ever transpired. But by and large, this is secret. And so we have to be very careful. In the, in the Reformed tradition, I think we have not been very careful about this to where it is that we have tried to pry into the decrees to figure out what God's up to. And that predicating on that thinking that we can have the knowledge of God in that kind of understanding with respect to everyday life and circumstances. You can't. Why? Calvin said it. Finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot contain the infinite. God is God and you are not. So you're not going to ever have that knowledge. You're not even going to be in glory. You're not going to be perfect in knowledge as God is. We don't become gods in heaven. We can't. Why? Because we're created. I mean, just think about it. But we are made perfect in our creation. The image that we bear, everything that God intended, is brought to perfection and no longer marred by sin. It's been delivered from that. But we leave the secret things to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. They belong to Him, but that which He has revealed, He's revealed for you to do. But He's told you that He's absolutely sovereign and in control. And man, that is good news. That is really, really good news. Then theologians talk about, in distinction from that in God's will, what they call His preceptive or His perceptive will. Sometimes His consequential will. This is what you uh, might call God's lordship attribute of authority. So these are the things when Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, secret things belong to God, but those things that He has revealed is His will. You shall not worship idols. You shall not covet. You shall commit no murder. You shall keep the Sabbath day. All these things God has revealed, and there are others as well. These are things that He has brought out to His covenant people saying, this is my will for you. The will that we perceive. Perceptive will. Preceptive will. Or His precepts as He has laid them out for us. His rule and His reign. Things that God wants from us. The desirable state of affairs that He has laid out for us in terms of our conduct. And then also as He has revealed it with respect, uh, with respect to our responsibility in various areas of life. And I want to just look at one of them. I want to look at the issue of evangelism. And I want you to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. It's a very disputed passage, but it really doesn't need to be. Um, because if you look at it from our perspective, as Peter is writing this, it just bears out the testimony in the, in the heart of God. But I'm also going to talk about how sometimes what Reformed folks have done with this verse, which really kind of guts it of what it means. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, does everybody reach repentance? It's not a trick question. Say no. No, they don't. Not everybody is going to be saved. We're not universalists. But what is the heart of God? God desires that we would know Him desires that people would repent. Now here's what I think the Reformed community has done to this verse, which is terrible. Is what, and I don't say the Reformed community as a whole, but there's a, a stream of thought within it, is that, well, it can't be 
that God desires that some be saved and that they're not. Therefore, we can't understand this as it's written. We have to understand it in light of his decree that because not everybody is saved, that this is just kind of anthropomorphic language that Peter's using so that we can kind of understand it down here. But it doesn't really mean what it says. Because if God desired that everybody be saved, what would happen? You follow the logic. That's everybody be saved. That's decretive will stuff. Leave it alone. That's what I'm saying. And we have tried, you know, we have scholasticized and prop propositionalized and everything theology through the ages to where we've taken passages like this and robbed the heart out of it to make it fit a theological perspective. Peter means exactly what he's saying, friends. God desires that all would come to him. Not everybody does. In this particular context, what's going on is the destruction of Jerusalem today is closing in on. And there are going to be a number of people who will perish. God doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to repent. He wants them to believe the gospel. And in the case of the Christians, the majority of them who were in the city, they evacuated before it was sacked by the Romans. But Peter is not speaking hypothetically here. This is God's perceptive will, and that is okay. That Moses appealed to God not to destroy Israel and God stayed his hand is not fictitious, anthropomorphic language. You see, I, for you theological types that like all this stuff, if you read um, a great history of theology uh, writer, theologian, Jaroslav Pelican, five-volume book on the history of Christian doctrine, one of the things he points out in the first volume is that very early on, when Christianity was going into the Roman Empire, there was a self-conscious effort to de-Judaize Christianity. To take away the Hebrew influences of it and make it more or closer to Hellenism or Greco-Roman thought. <coughs> See, the Hebrews had no problem with saying, God, Adonai, you want to say Jehovah, whatever, is sovereign over everything and controls all things. By his hand. And Moses appealed to God, and God stayed his hand because of Moses' appeal. They didn't have any problem with it. But what Greco Roman culture did is they said, those two can't go together. Because you have A and non A. That was a contradiction. So we have to work this out. Either God is sovereign in control of everything. And Moses really didn't appeal to God and have any impact. It's just written for our benefit from some kind of hypothetical standpoint. Or if Moses changed God's mind that he's really not sovereign and in control of everything. You see the problem here? You see what we tend to do with this in the West? The Jews had no problem with this. They left it alone. Yeah, God's in control of everything. And yeah, Moses really had an impact. Did God ordain that too? Yeah. Did Moses do it freely and appealing for his people? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's go get a milkshake. <laughs> you know, let's just leave it alone. But try not to rationalize these things down is what I'm appealing to and what I'm encouraging. Just be very careful about that because we do affirm the sovereignty of God as we should, strongly. But don't diminish the covenantal language of Scripture and the statements of the apostles and try to filter them through decrees that you don't know and can never know. Because what you do is you just rob the passage of what it means. What it means. This will, this preceptive will is kept in covenant 
or broken in covenant by us. We're either obedient or disobedient. God has revealed His will for your life, how you are to live. And you either are obedient or you're disobedient. God's decretive will can't be broken. God's perceptive or perceptive will can. But that's not really where we come down. I'm trying to work this issue through. We kind of know those things. We, again, we tend to err more on the decretive side of things, but those aren't really the ones. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. But we want to know, should I take this job or this job? Should I marry this person or this person? Should I buy this car or this car? Should I buy this house or this house? What do you do? How do you work those out? Well, let's look at it. Is there a third category? I think that there is on these practical decisions. But we have to qualify it. We have to be very careful that we don't mislead. Here's the problem with this, and I alluded to this at the beginning. The difference between discerning God's will and understanding God's will. Discerning means you've got to figure it out. You've got to discern it. You have to understand it. Well, with respect to his perceptive will, his commandments, yeah, that's fine. He reveals those things. But it's better to say understanding because God reveals it for us to learn, not to try in and of ourselves to pry into his mind to figure things out about all the nitty-gritty details of life. The danger there is it's led to all kinds of subjectivism and mysticism through the years. Like I say, if you've read books on this, you see all kinds of practices that are encouraged. How are you going to decide who to marry? How are you going to decide what job? All that stuff. You know, they go through all these sorts of things and they go for everything from spend time in prayer and fasting and God will make it known to you. Well, how do you know that? All right, let me play the devil's advocate here. I'm praying about this. How do I know that the grumbling in my stomach is, isn't the testimony of the Holy Spirit? It's just indigestion. I mean, that's God not speaking. I mean, you're in, you're, you're in prayer and fasting and, uh, you know, you get a... A, a long grumble in your stomach. That must be God telling me something. No. You've got indigestion or you're hungry. Okay? That's the sort of stuff this can slip into, and you've got to be careful about not going there. But it's not illegitimate to ask God to reveal that to you. And He tells you, I think, by and large, how you can discern these things. The Bible does not tell us anywhere to try to. Uh, figure out the particulars of life that he's going to tell you the distinct things along the way. But what he does tell you to do is to seek after wisdom. To seek after wisdom. And let's talk about that for just a second. The application of wisdom is what a godly person seeks. We seek the Holy Spirit. We seek that the Spirit would give us illumination. We seek that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand better the circumstances that we are in. And we are to pray for that. Do I need to turn over to the book of James, chapter 1? Do we need to do that to see it? Yeah, let's do it. Look over to the book of James, chapter 1. I don't want you to think I'm pulling a rabbit out of a hat here, okay? Look at what it is that he tells us to do. Interestingly enough, he, 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 he says this in the flow of thought concerning adversity which is normal for the Christian life. Verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, think about what's being said there. First thing is, the, the people, the, this general epistle of this apostle here in Jerusalem are going through intense challenge and adversity. And the first thing he says is, it's okay. It's okay that you're going through this. Don't be discouraged by it. This is something you should expect in the Christian life. If you follow Christ, you should expect that you will suffer in some capacity. But let it produce steadfastness. Don't be defeated by this. Don't be run down by it. And oh my gosh, are we ever. When I told you what I said last week you know, about the sermon, I was, being, I was just as run down that week as I could possibly be and felt absolutely defeated. And that's what James is saying. Don't do that because when you do that, you're just kind of throwing up your arms. God doesn't love me anymore. God just has it in for me. There's no answer. Yeah, I can't get what, Don't go there. But find the strength by the Spirit to let that be something that gives you concrete footing. That God loves you. He's got you. He's going to carry you through this. He's not going to tell you the end. You can make straight what God's made crooked, right? It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. After some of the missions I've done, especially with the wounded and, and those who were killed in, in, in battle, uh, it, that... Who can make straight what God has made crooked? God makes one day as well as the other. Sometimes we're good, rejoice. Sometimes we're bad, consider. This is the way that it is. This is Solomon speaking. Rather than trying to discern it all out and say, well, God is blessing me if I'm enjoying life and I'm making a lot of money and I can get everything that I want. That's blessing. But if I'm not getting that, God must not be blessing me. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. So, here you are, in a mess. What do you need to do? God, would you reveal to me what your plan is for this circumstance so that I can find enough wherewithal within me to persevere through it? You're not going to get an answer. What he does say is pray for wisdom. How do I engage this circumstance, Lord? How do I need to deal with this? This is presupposing all the givens of seeking out the Lord in prayer and seeking the Spirit's help and strength. That's all a given, but practically speaking, how do you navigate the waters? You pray for wisdom. You pray for wisdom. And that can be as simple, and I, I've said this before, I think it was in Sunday school, uh, one I throw out as an example is uh, you got job offers, one's in Tulsa, one's in Topeka, and you pull out a legal pad, with your spouse and you draw a line in the middle, pros and cons, and you go all the way through, either one of them. Pay is the same, school districts are about the same, whatever, church, you got one there, all that, you know. It's all, so which one, Lord, do you want me to do? Pick one. According to wisdom. And that's God's will. But when you do that, and whatever it is that, you're doing that in life with, if it doesn't go all positive for you, don't say, I'm not in God's will, which is what we tend to do. Now, if we're in sin, that's one thing. Yeah, you're out of God's will. That's perceptive will. But in this here, okay, I've met with more challenges. You know, I really thought this was going to be 
you know, we were going to get away from those, you know, crazy neighbors we had before and just have the most wonderful neighborhood, you know, on the planet. And, you know, they're just hellions everywhere. I mean, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And you look at that and you go, well, this isn't me. I'm not in God's will. It just means I made a decision. I obeyed God. I prayed for wisdom. I didn't doubt that He would give me wisdom. We made this decision with the best information that we had. And this is where God has us at this moment. And glorify Him in your circumstances. That's what we're to do. To understand it. Not let it be emotionally driven. Whatever you do, don't say let go, let God. Please. Okay. Steve Brown, one of my professors, would say it's alive from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. You don't say that. Let go and let God. Uh-uh. You're always moving. You're always engaged. We are to be. That's what we're supposed to do. We don't withdraw from the challenges. We engage them. How? According to wisdom. Be prayerful, making right and wise decisions as God promises that He will give that. Look over at Romans 12. It was read this morning. I used to hear this passage read all the time when I was in campus ministry, um, when I was a student. And then I did it when I was doing campus ministry, but... This always resonated. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 12.1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, just stop there for a second. This is the precondition of understanding how God wants us to be, whether it's with the things that are specifically revealed or those things that wisdom say to us. Don't be double-minded. Don't be one engaging in sin and trying to work this out at the same time, but to present yourself as God has called you, first and foremost, as a living sacrifice before Him. Confess what it is that's standing between you and God that may impair your wisdom. Get those things dealt with. That's the first thing that Paul says. And then he goes on and he says, that by testing you may discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, I don't like the word discern because of the way we tend to use it, but I think it's being understood differently here. I think what it's saying is that you might be able to understand in that situational life that you're in what God wants you to do. And the way that He reveals that is according to wisdom. But before you can round first and go to second, you have to make sure your own heart's in order. And that your faith is where it needs to be, even if it's struggling. Whatever sins in your life, whatever you're struggling with, is confess to the Lord. Even if you're still working through it, you don't have to be perfect. But you're acknowledging that you need God not just when there's trouble, but you need Him all the time. About your pastor search. Which will of God is this going to be? Well, God's ordained it. You don't know who that is. You trust that this person is obeying God's perceptive will, that the character and life of the man is going to be what the qualifications of Scripture say ought to be of a pastor. But who is it going to be? How are you going to discern that? Not by reading tea leaves. Okay? Not by some kind of mystical practice. The hair on the back of your neck will not stand up when he walks through the door. Okay? That's not going to happen. You discern that through wisdom. Be prayerful. And you trust the leadership, the search committee, and others who are involved in the process that God will give them wisdom. And that whoever it is that comes here 
you didn't make a mistake. You have called that person. That is God's will for you. One of the first things I say um, the churches that I've gone to, one of the first things that I say when I get up in the pulpit is I say, I'm going to let you down. I will. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to frustrate you and I'm going to make you mad sometimes. Let's just go ahead and get it out there. Let's just call the elephant in the room for what it is. Because you're a sinner and so am I. So, what do you do with this reality? You didn't call Jesus to be your pastor. You have to acknowledge the fact that you called somebody who is walking the life of the Gospel just like you are. So, what does wisdom tell you to do when there's a problem? What does the Word reveal to you? Whisper about it? Say, we called the wrong person? Say, the search committee didn't have a clue what they needed to be doing? <laughs> they were out of their minds? No. You go and you resolve it. You see, it's really not all that complicated in our head to get our brain around what we need to do. The hard part is doing it. It really is. The hard part is doing it. Whatever that decision is, it is God's will. And it is God's will for you as a church to move forward and to believe that that is the person God has placed in leadership for you at this point in time in His history to make you more and more like Christ and lead you through the Gospel as you all walk together towards the glory of Jesus Christ. That's true there and it's true in every aspect of your life. Don't fall off into mysticism. Don't second-guess your decisions. If you have given it to the Lord in prayer and you've appropriated wisdom, don't... What if... My goodness, that never ends anywhere, does it? What if? But leave it alone and accept it as God's will for your life and keep moving. That's His plan for us. That's His will for you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are first committed to that which You have revealed. We know that Your Word of salvation is clear to us and what our responsibility is to the Gospel and what our responsibility is to You in the Christian life. And we pray that You would magnify that within each of us. And as we engage in our personal lives and our family lives and our work lives and all manner of situations where we engage the world or we find ourselves, whatever it is, that You would give us the wisdom that we seek and that You would guide our steps. We know that You do because You tell us to trust in You with all of our heart. Certainly not to follow our own understanding of our own ways, but to acknowledge You and You are the one who will direct our paths and make them straight. I pray that for this church. I pray that for myself. I pray that we would be glorifying You in our obedience. In Jesus' name, Amen.